This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This year, Matthew Shepard will have been dead for as long as he was alive. 21 years ago, the openly gay Wyoming college student was beaten, tied to a fence, and left for dead. His murder shocked the country and gave an enormous boost to the fight against hate crimes. His parents, Judy and Dennis Shepard, founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation based in Denver. Matthew also lived in Denver for a time. Next month, the Shepherds will be honored as civil rights champions by the Anti-Defamation League. They joined me from their home in Casper, Wyoming. Judy, Dennis, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for uh, the interest. Judy, this award from ADL's Mountain States chapter is for working on causes that were also championed by your son, Matthew. Social justice, diversity, equality for GLBT people. How soon after his death did you know you dedicate the rest of your lives to this? Well, even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew we needed to do something. The communications we'd been getting from parents and members of the community were like, please use this moment in time when people will be listening to you to express your hope that other parents will accept their children. Because as accepting parents, it was a little unusual maybe in the late 90s to be accepting, and they wanted us to remind people how important it is to love your kids. And maybe they would rethink uh, that they needed their children back in their family because at least they still had their children. So even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew if the opportunity came up, we would take advantage of it. And we started the foundation on Matt's birthday, December 1st, 1998, about two months after he passed. Oh, my. Certainly didn't think it was going to be dedicating the rest of our lives. We thought two years, maybe, people would remember Matt and Matt's story. So the notion that it was dedicating our lives to this work, we would do it in whatever way we could, but probably not in the way we're doing it now. I mean, I I would be the P-flag mom making cookies, not the P-flag mom at the podium. PFLAG is an organization for parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Dennis, were you surprised by how quickly Matthew's story went global and how profoundly it affected people? Well, we were rather shocked because we were in Saudi at the time, and I was working over there. And what happened was the initial response we got was that he has severe head injuries, and we thought it was a vehicle accident. So that's all we thought about all the way back over. It took almost 50 hours to get back hmm. with all the layovers and the fact that this we got the call at 5 in the morning and we couldn't leave till after midnight. And then with the layovers and the flights and everything. So we, we just thought it was a vehicle accident until we got to Minneapolis to pick up our other son. And, and Judy's sister and niece met us at the uh, jetway. He said his story is all over the internet, radio, newspaper, everything, news, TV. He said, for what, a car accident? She said, well, it's not a car accident. Hmm. And um, it just exploded. And we were rather shocked then, and we still are. It's just, he seems to be the kid next door. Everybody can relate to it. It doesn't matter your religion or your your gender or whatever, uh, your race they could all pick out something in there that reminded them of of themselves or or a close friend or a relative. And it just has stayed that way ever since. 
This award from the ADL specifically mentions the passage of the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009, which you and Judy helped make happen. Has that law made it? Let me correct you right there. Yes, please. I didn't help make anything happen. Judy did it. I was back in Saudi Arabia for 12 more years Mm. to pay the bills. It was Judy's work that did that, not mine. Judy, has that law made a difference? I would say yes, it has, symbolically at least, given a route for members of the LGBT community to seek justice if the states they live in do not do that. Five states have no hate crime laws. Of the states that do, not all of them cover the LGBTQ plus community. So this was a backstop to protect them. But there have been successful prosecutions. There have been challenges to it that have not succeeded. So I feel confident that this will... um, this will stay on the books as it is. I, it actually has a fatal flaw in that it doesn't require reporting because without required reporting, we really don't know where the issues are. No numbers, no problems. So um, this is something we're trying to address now. Talk to me just a bit more about the reporting. So according to FBI data in 2017, about 16 percent of reported hate crimes were related to a person's sexual orientation. But I have a feeling you think that's underreported. Oh, absolutely, without question. Let's just start at the states where you can be fired from your job for being gay. Why would you report a hate crime if you're in danger of being outed and losing your job? And maybe you're not out to your family either. This is a, this is a serious problem. The only way we can protect those folks is to do federal job protections um, like we do for everybody else in this country. Also, if members of the community fear retaliation, re-victimization from officers, um, they're afraid of the reactions they're going to get. Plus, it takes time for hate crimes to be investigated and prosecuted, and oftentimes they lose patience. So this is a, this is a problem that can be addressed, but it's going to take the cooperation of everybody involved. We don't currently place enough importance on hate crimes We were starting to get there in the previous administration, but right now they've definitely taken a back seat. So until we make them important again, underreporting is going to continue, and not just for the gay community, but marginalized communities, uh, Muslims, immigrants, refugees, uh, anybody in fear of another reason to be re-victimized by another entity is a reason for them not to want to report. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by... Dennis and Judy Shepard, parents of Matthew Shepard and founders of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is based partly in Wyoming, partly in Colorado. It is in memory of Matthew Shepard, the 21-year-old gay Wyoming college student who was tortured, tied to a fence, left for dead. And the Shepard's work has earned them an honor that will be presented next month from the Anti-Defamation League. Dennis, back in October, Matthew was laid to rest at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and I just want to play a few of your words from the ceremony. It's so important that we now have a home for Matt, a home that others can visit, a home that is safe from haters. Can you help us understand what you mean by the haters? Was Matt's grave being desecrated? He was never in a grave. We kept his ashes here because we wanted to scatter him in Wyoming, but 
his younger brother said, I need a place to go to visit him. And we didn't want to separate the ashes. So we kept him here. And we didn't want to put his ashes any place where there was a chance of vandalism. And we knew it would happen. As soon as you got out of sight, there'd be somebody in there either tearing up the headstones or throwing paint or doing something to vandalize it and destroy it and desecrate it. And so we were having a a tough problem deciding what we were going to do. And the cathedral was the perfect solution because it allows everybody to go there. It's a safe place for them to reflect uh, on their lives and their friends and family and to think about Matt and what his sacrifice did for others. But it also shows the country that there is a a national cathedral which represents the entire country that is all-inclusive and accepts everybody. When you say that you had fears there would be vandalism if he were buried somewhere sort of accessible, maybe in Wyoming, what, what do you base those fears on? Well, based on the history of what's happened since we lost him. And not just LGBTQ, but... Look at the synagogues, look at the the race, the religion, everything. They are still having problems. And with this administration, they've just gotten worse. And so we knew that would happen. And when you're in a state like Wyoming, Judy mentioned there are five states with no hate crime laws whatsoever. Former southern states, Indiana, Georgia, South Carolina, and Arkansas. The other is Wyoming. So the, the motto is the equality state, and there is no equality here for all its citizens, just like there is no equality throughout the country for all of its citizens. Is it hard to, in your own backyard, where Matthew died, not to have seen that change? It's, it's rather demoralizing, depressing, and disgusting, actually. Here you have a state that is crying now because of the energy problem. They used to be in, in the black uh, money-wise budget. Now they're in the red, and now they want to diversify their economy. They're not going to do it until they have a hate crime law and a, and a uh, job discrimination protection law for all of its citizens, because no corporation is coming in here if they can't hire the best. And right now they can't because they can't protect them. Judy, what is the nature of your work now? What are you most focused on in terms of policy change or social change? Oh, gosh, I think they're kind of the same. Policy change only works if you can get the social change to come along with it. Uh, once you've got to get the policy in effect first. So we got the hate crime bill in the law now, and um, we're focusing, again, on hate crime education. We do conferences around the country working with local law enforcement and non-government organizations community organizations, citizens, anybody who's interested in finding out what the hate crime law does and doesn't do, explaining how to investigate, um, how to prosecute, actually the definition of what a hate crime is. So that's our focus right now. Colorado, where the Matthew Shepard Foundation has an important office, and I I think where Matt lived for a time, he was in Denver for a period of time, right? Right. Yeah. Colorado just swore in an openly gay governor. The state also has its the state also has its first Great. openly transgender lawmaker. Are these milestones that y- you think Matthew would have envisioned, could have envisioned? No, I, I don't think. Well, he was only twenty one. I'm not sure those kinds of things were on his radar yet. Uh, marriage definitely was. Uh, we had had that discussion the summer of '98 when 
Hawaii was discussing uh, same-sex marriage. But the rest, I'm not really sure, was on his radar yet in any way where he thought it was achievable um, yet. And the Denver did the uh, conversion therapy ban, another huge step, especially considering where Colorado was not that many years ago. This is a ban on the type of therapy that attempts to make gay people straight, which has largely been scientifically debunked. Oh, it's, it's a torture session. Do you remember what it was like when Matt came out to you? It was like, finally. <laughs> finally, you're going you're gonna to tell us who you are? Yay! Um, I had had a strong suspicion since he was about eight years old that he might be gay. And so when he did come out to me, he was uh, 18, a college freshman, on the phone when we were living in Saudi. Um, I was relieved that he was ready to be himself. Matthew has been gone as long as he was alive. Uh, 21, much. 21 years. What is the nature of grief 21 years later? You know, that's a really good question. It doesn't go away. The concept of closure is, uh, is a joke. It just gets different. Rose Kennedy used to refer to it as the scab you continually remove. You think you're healing and then something happens and you realize you're not. You just learn to build your life around the wound. Dennis, 21 years later, what is the nature of grief for you? It's more anger that somebody decided to be judge, jury, and executioner against somebody who was different. Well, we're all different. They didn't look in the mirror and see how they were and what they looked like. And so you take the grief, you live with it, but you take the anger and you focus it. And that's all we're trying to do is help these young people have a better life so they're all considered equal and they get an equal chance to succeed. Thanks for being with us. Of course. It's uh, our pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for your interest. And we really look forward to coming to Denver. Dennis and Judy Shepard are the parents of Matthew Shepard, the gay 21-year-old who was murdered in 1998. The Shepherds are being honored next month with the Civil Rights Award from the Mountain States chapter of the Anti-Defamation League. The Matthew Shepard Foundation is based in Denver. Last year, on the 20th anniversary of Shepard's death, an oratorio debuted called Considering Matthew Shepard. It toured the West, including Colorado. Here's a track called The Fence. Out and alone on the endless empty prairie the moon bathes me, the stars bless me, the sun warms me, the wind soothes me. I wonder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I wonder, will I always be out here exposed and alone? Will I ever know why I was put here It's one of the stormiest places on Earth, and a researcher from Colorado is in the middle of the action. I'm talking about the Andean foothills of Argentina, where hailstones can be the size of grapefruits, or bigger. A team of scientists is spending six weeks chasing storms in the region, and their work could help us understand our own weather 
With us via Skype from Argentina is storm hunter Kristen Rasmussen, atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University. And Kristen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Is it living up to its reputation down there as one of the stormiest places on Earth? It is. Uh, we have seen really violent uh, rains and winds. Uh, we've, we've noted um, hailstones uh, and also some tornadoes that have happened out east. So it's, it's very intense. How big have those hailstones been? Uh, the largest hailstone we've seen is about a baseball-sized hailstone. We've seen many other instances of much smaller hail, uh, but we're waiting for the big one. It's so interesting. Most people uh, want to do everything they can to avoid hail. You're, you're running towards it. Help us understand why this is one of the stormiest places on Earth. Does it have anything to do with the mountains there? Absolutely. The Andes Mountains here are very, very tall. Uh, they're about 50% larger than the average altitude of the Rocky Mountains. Wow. And so what this creates is a very extreme environment for these storms to form in. Exactly how are you going about chasing these storms? Are you in a vehicle? Is this by air? How close do you want to get in? So we have two primary modes of observation here. The first is a mobile campaign. We have uh, three Doppler on wheels radars. These are mobile radars that can be placed wherever we want. We also have uh, vehicles outfitted with uh, weather stations along the roads as we, wherever we decide. Uh, the second mode is, is fixed radars. These are much larger radars that can see larger size precipitation. And uh, we use these in combination with the mobile assets to put together a holistic picture of the storms. And have you been in uh, one of those vehicles when a, an intense storm has come along? I have. Uh, yes, it's a very exciting experience. You have a lot of wind and a lot of rain. Sometimes those vehicles are driving along the roads to transect through the storm, so it can be a very exciting experience. And I imagine that it, at some point you're on some rather sheer mountain faces? We are near a mountain range called the Sierras de Cordoba Mountains. It's actually a secondary mountain range east of the main Andes barrier. We hypothesize that this smaller mountain range actually helps to focus the convection in a, in a very small location so we see lots of really interesting and deep convection happening right near this smaller mountain range. Okay, that word convection, help us understand that. I associate it with ovens. Yes. So convection is basically uh, when we have warm air that rises down from the surface up into the atmosphere. This is what creates clouds. Uh, and so when I say convection, this is essentially really uh, deep, intense clouds and thunderstorms. You are driving vehicles towards hail, so I, I have to think that you just have to surrender to hail damage on these vehicles. <laughs> so we have had one instance of uh, pretty significant hail damage on one of our radar trucks. Uh, we actually had some baseball-sized hail make some dents in the truck, so that is a hazard of what we do. Uh, to study the hail a little bit more safely, we actually deploy a network of hail pads these are essentially pieces of styrofoam covered in aluminum foil that we place out in an array in the locations where we think we may get large hail. And then the hailstones fall, make an imprint on the hail pads, and then we can measure their sizes after the case very safely. Uh, of course, there are people who live in this region for whom these kinds of storms, I gather, are just part of daily life, huh? That's right. We have actually talked to a lot of the local population. We've had a bunch of outreach events with K-12 students. And one clear message that has come through, at least for me personally, is that the severe weather here is just a part of their life. We asked these fifth grade students, how large is hail here? And they were holding up orange sized, you know, circles with their hands. We were just, wow, this is, this is just what they are used to. They don't realize maybe that these storms are amongst 
the, the most intense and largest in the world. Hmm. This is just what they experience on a regular basis. How long might an intense storm last? Some of the smaller thunderstorms may last between one to five hours. They, they tend to be smaller in scale and more local. Um, these larger organized complexes are very long-lived. I've seen cases where they last at least 24 hours, sometimes into, into 48 hours of time as they grow and build in the region. Now, what is it that you hope to learn perhaps about Colorado's own weather? Because there are a lot of similar forces. What we hope to learn is what happens in a an environment that's a little bit more severe than what we see in the Rockies. And in that case, how can we understand the storms that happen back home and uh, forecast them in a more consistent way when we understand different types of environments around the world? Yeah, forecasting is key here because the more notice you can give to people, I suppose, the the safer we all are. Is that the idea? That's right. Yeah, we, you know, the better forecasts we have of thunderstorms and convection at back home and here in Argentina, uh, the more warning we can put out. Uh, Both regions have large hail, strong winds, you know, significant rainfall, tornadoes, uh, all of the same types of severe weather impacts. And the more warning we can give to the population uh, in both places, the better we uh, can basically save life and property. In Argentina, actually, there's uh, the severe warning system is actually very um, early in its stages. Uh, They just installed their ground-based radar network about two years ago. And so we're hoping we're actually working with the uh, the local weather service here in Argentina to help improve their understanding of the storms here, and then also how we can do severe weather warning going into the future for the local population here in Argentina. A little bit of a Colorado. Argentina exchange program weather-wise, I suppose. Well, I'm glad you're safe, and I'm glad you could join us. Yes, thank you very much. Kristen Rasmussen is an atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University. She's chasing some of the world's most intense storms in Argentina. The hope is to learn more about thunderstorms here. It can upend how you view your family to learn they were slave owners. The question is, then what? Yesterday, we met a Denver woman who'd made just such a discovery and decided to give an inheritance, some $200,000, towards reparations. Today, we meet a retired financial strategist in the Denver area who will not only leave all her money for reparations, she also encourages other white people nationwide to do the same. She is Lottie Liebdula. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Very happy to be here. What made you so passionate about this issue? I discovered things about my family that I had no uh, knowledge of. I discovered in my grandmother's records that she had been a member of the KKK while she was at Smith College in the early 1900s. In fact, you have a yearbook with you in which there is a an ad, essentially, uh, an emblazoning of the KKK logo on one of the pages. I was stunned by that, and I found a picture of her wearing a robe, a hooded robe in one of these yearbooks. I've always thought of my grandmother as a kind person, a person who made cookies for me, a person who uh, wanted to make the world a better place. And when I discovered these things, I realized there was another, there was a a very painful truth about my family um, who hail from the South. And I decided I really needed to look into this further. And my grandfather's side, um, first I found some daguerreotype photos uh, from around the Civil War era, which were stunningly beautiful. And I was thrilled to find them. Immediately underneath, I found a ledger book. 
And as I went page by page, I discovered a list of people that had been enslaved by my second great-grandfather in Mississippi. You have that ledger book with you. Will you open a page and read from some of the names? This is page 27 and 28. The pages are titled Loss of Slaves by War, 1861 to 1865. Each slave is numbered. Um, Their ages are listed and also there's a valuation and their ownership is listed. So number one is Edie. She's 45 years old and valued at $800. And she, her, it's hard to say the word, owner. It's not right. Um, This is my second great-grandfather, William Hayes Paxton. Number two, Julia. She's 26, valued at $1,400. The list goes on. There are 44 names on this list. My goodness. How was it to reconcile with this history? I feel like I'm at the very beginning of my path. Um, I can't reconcile this history. What's clear to me is that if I've inherited any good qualities from my ancestors, what I can do now is to try to begin to make things right. My ancestors did wrong. It's right here in black and white. I have photographs. I have this ledger book. There's no question. Um, So in order to make things right, I feel like I have a moral debt to pay to the descendants of enslaved people in this country. And I'm going to, I'm putting together a website so that other people like me can begin the process of making reparations for slavery. Have you met other people, white people, with similar desires? Yes. I found this ledger, I'm I'm really brand new to this path. In January of 2018, that's when I found this ledger book and the Smith College. So you're a year in. I'm just just a year in. Um, This is how I'll spend the rest of my life. There is a group called Coming to the Table. It's a nationwide organization that uh, links together descendants of slaveholders or slave traders with descendants of the enslaved. And together we work to try to eradicate institutional racism and make reparations. And make reparations. What does reparations mean to you? So in a conversation that has uh, already aired, it, it meant to one Denver woman giving $200,000 of an inheritance to a group that works on racial justice. What does it mean to you? My personal reparations are just beginning. Uh, the first thing I thought of is um, as I researched my own genealogy, I discovered that most of my ancestors were in one of three trades. Uh, there are many, many uh, attorneys, judges, doctors, and also people who governed this land, governors, mayors. And so I negotiated with United Negro College Fund to set up a scholarship in the name of my slaveholding ancestors. Uh, So I've set up a scholarship for anyone who would like to study political science, law, or medicine. Presumably anyone who is African-American. Yes, African-American people only. It's restricted. Um, I've also worked to repatriate these records because it's very important for African-Americans to try to find their ancestors. And it's nearly impossible if you consider that people's names, we don't have last names. Um, I think there's a, a wall in 1870. That's the first time the census listed 
black people with their last names, et cetera. Um, and it's nearly impossible to go back further than that unless people like me repatriate these documents that we have in our addicts to help people. To what extent have you relied on African-Americans to help guide the journey you're taking? Uh, differently put, you're a white woman. How do you not look like the preachy white woman telling black people what reparations should look like? I've taken my cues from coming to the table. Um, there was a group that has put together a list of what they feel are good ways to make reparations. Yeah, what are other ways? Well, one way that I'm personally very excited about is making direct reparations. Earlier this year in June, I went to a national gathering of coming to the table, and a young African-American woman approached me and said, and I explained to her I, I was making this uh, donation to United Negro College Fund. And she said, well, that's great. What about people who have already gone through college and have an enormous debt? And it turns out her education cost her $160,000. She is uh, gone through school in international relations, and she just landed her dream job, which is working at the State Department. But this level of debt, she will never be able to pay this off at the low level of pay that she'll be making doing this civic work. She'll never be able to buy a house. So I thought, okay, I'll help you pay off your college debt. You said earlier, it was fascinating, you said, this is how I'm going to spend the rest of my life, focused on this. There's no question. And if only uh, my life could be extended 250 or 400 years, maybe I'd make a small dent. Um, but honestly, there's no way that I can recompense for the, the sins of my family, basically. Have you decided on a dollar amount of what you'd like to give over your lifetime? Yes. Since I do, uh, I used to do financial modeling <laughs> for my career, yeah. of course, I modeled uh, what I might be able to give. Um, I think over the course of my lifetime, my goal is to give uh, half a million dollars. And then through whatever means I, I, I can, um, and then at my death, the rest of it will go to making, um, setting up a reparations fund. And the idea is to encourage many others as well to make reparations. I think that's part of what you see as your life's work now. Yes, absolutely. What would you say to people who think these are the sins of your ancestors, these are not your sins, that the, the daughter can't be held responsible for the sins of a great or great-great-grandfather? I don't agree because I feel like all of us as white people benefit from the effects of institutional racism. For instance, my forebears were lawmakers politicians, doctors. These are the pillars of racism. I think this is how these things are held in place. These things exist today. I don't believe the past is the past. I believe it's fully present, uh, these effects. So I, I am absolutely responsible. I think of the 2014 piece from Ta-Nehisi Coates, The Case for Reparations, and he wrote, Approach the topic of reparations today and a barrage of questions inevitably follows. Who will be paid? How much will they be paid? And who will pay? As a white person speaking to other white people, how do you address those concerns? I don't have an answer, and I believe it's inestimable the amount that is owed. But if each person makes their effort, there's a development director who I met at the National Gathering of Coming to the Table he said if each white person were to allocate even 1% of their charitable gifts during the year, I believe the number is something like $390 billion of charitable gifts are given every year. If, if each person were to allocate 1% to 
to a black-run foundation, charity, or even direct reparations, we could begin the process of reparations. It does not take that much. Even if you only have $50 a year to give, take 10% of that $50. I think the natural question arises of, of where does it begin and where does it stop? And who else has experienced uh, great suffering in this country? I mean, I think of Japanese Americans who were uh, put in internment camps. I think of uh, American Indians, for instance, the first peoples of this country. And, and I wonder how you've wrestled with that question as well. Well, to me, the U.S. government owes reparations. And to date, they have not been willing – the U.S. government is not willing to look at this uh, issue. Let um, me just say that Michigan Congressman John Conyers introduced a bill every year for more than two decades calling for, at minimum, a congressional study of slavery and its effects. And it also would have asked Congress to study appropriate remedies. Uh, that bill has never once made it to the House floor for debate. Conyers resigned in 2017. Absolutely. Um, But if you look, for instance, Germany made reparations for the Holocaust. We did make reparations to Japanese Americans for internment during World War II. It is absolutely important to make reparations. If H.R. 40 does not make it back for passage, then it is up to each one of us who's benefited from the effects of slavery, etc., who's earned wealth by subjugating others to make reparations personally. And I I will do that until I'm gone. I think that's an important point because what you're saying there is you're not just asking white people whose family owned slaves to think about this themselves. You're you're asking a much broader group, huh? Yes. I believe anyone who is white, whether your family just moved here or has been here since the 1600s, like my family, everyone benefits by these pillars of racism. If you're white and you're walking down the street, you can walk up to a police officer without thinking you're going to be shot. If you go to school, most of the teachers there will, will match your own race. Um, there is a level of invisible comfort we all have as white people that African Americans don't share. What kind of discussions have you had with your family about this? Well, I guess I'm lucky that my parents have passed away because I think they would be deeply embarrassed uh, about their family's past, especially because my parents were very liberal, uh, but they never admitted to uh, slaveholding past. Um, I've told my sister that um, her kids are not going to inherit anything from me, that all of my money will go toward making reparations. What was her reaction? She said, thank you from the family. Really? Thank you. She says, my kids are fine. This is more important. And thank you for doing this for our family. Why does that make you tear up? Because my sister realizes that righting a wrong is more important than having this money stay in the family. Were you relieved when she reacted that way? I was very relieved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel, I feel good. I feel good doing it. I feel very strong doing it. Um, and I know I'm doing the right thing. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Lottie Liebdula is a retired financial strategist in Denver and an advocate for reparations. We'll link to resources from Coming to the Table at CPR.org. That's where you'll also find yesterday's conversation with an African-American minister in Denver. Her social justice nonprofit received a large donation from a white woman who wanted to make reparations. 
Just 32 American students a year are named Rhodes Scholars. It's essentially free tuition for graduate studies at Oxford University in England, plus a stipend. It's been a while since a student from CU Boulder's been chosen, and that university has never had a woman win until now. She is Serene Singh. She also joins a small number of Sikh Americans who've won. Hi, Serene. Hello. I just think your name is wonderful, Serene Singh. Why, thank you. You're so welcome. I understand that you played a joke on your family after you found out about the scholarship. This was actually caught on tape. (laughs) Will you set up the scene for us and then we'll hear that? Yes, absolutely. So I think we are staying on the third floor of our hotel and I... I just traveled back, and obviously I've been in tears. I just cry for everything, so I cry when I'm happy, when I'm sad, so usually people can't tell. But I I figured, okay, I'm crying anyways. I will just tell my parents um, that I didn't win the scholarship when I get back home. It was like 11.30 at this point. They knew to expect me late because um, the judges take a while to deliberate, and then they choose their scholars, and then everyone kind of goes home, but you never know how long it's going to take for them to decide. So it was 11.30 or so at night, and I'm standing in front of my hotel room, and I have my phone on the floor, so it's recording on the floor, (laughs) up against my water bottle and my bag that I brought for the day. And I knock on the door quite a few times, and no one's picking up. And then my sister opens the door. She just sees me bawling, and she's like, Serene. And I'm like, I didn't get it, Diddy. Um, and I call her Diddy out of respect in Indian culture. And she's like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. No worries. Like, we'll have other opportunities. Don't worry. So she kind of just embraces me and she's petting my back. And she's like, why are you standing outside? Get your stuff. Like, why Why are you waiting out here? Let's just go inside. You don't have to be in the public right now. And so she goes and she grabs my phone and my bag and she doesn't realize it's on recording. So she's just picking it up and I just start laughing. And she's like, why are you laughing? <laughs> And then my mom's looking, and she's holding a Chinese box tray um, for takeout. And then she flips it around, and it says, Congratulations, Road Scholar. And I was like, Mom, how'd you know? She's like, I had a feeling. I just had a feeling in my heart that you won it. And so both of them just start cheering, and then they bring me into the room. And, and you thought we didn't know? <laughs> you thought we didn't know? Was your sister mad at you? They were so excited. Okay. They just forgot about it so quickly. And I'm such a trickster. They were like, oh, traditional serene. Uh, I mentioned uh, how competitive this scholarship is. 32 students from the U.S. each year. And a surprising part of the screening is a judged cocktail party. Yes. <laughs> Describe it for us. You know, it was honestly one of the scariest parts going into it, but one of the best experiences of my life. What I really liked about it is you actually get to know the judges one-on-one. You get to understand who they are. Um, They get to see your personality a little bit more. Um, How do you walk around? How do you handle yourself in social situations when you spill a drink on yourself? What do you do? Did you Um, spill a drink? I didn't. But actually, it's really funny. They had had food, but everyone was really stressed to eat the food because, you know, eating and talking is is stressful. But (laughs) I just kind of walked over to the pineapples, and I was like, ah, pineapple's my favorite, and I just started eating them. And one of the judges made a comment. He's like, hey, you're the first one to take food. I'm so proud. Like someone finally was ballsy (laughs) enough to go and eat. And I was like, I'm hungry. For something that might surprise people now, you're passionate about beauty pageants. (laughs) You compete regularly. That wasn't always the case, I guess. Right. What was your first impression of of beauty contests? First impression, completely honestly, was uh, disgust. I mean, I, I never thought beauty pageants were something impressive. I didn't think that there was women in them that 
you know, had high goals and aspirations. I kind of just judged whatever I saw on TV, the mm -hmm. small snippets, like a lot of us do. And I know my entire family did as well. And I was a complete tomboy, so that did not help with all of the heels <laughs> and the makeup and the gowns and the hair and all of that didn't make any sense to me. And so this was all in high school. And I remember I was competitively involved in speech and debate. Every single one of my major speeches in high school was making fun of some kind of a pageant contestant. So some answer that they did and some question answer, um, some random fall that happened, something in their reign or their time as a beauty pageant, it was always, I always put in a joke. I just thought it was so funny and they always worked. Those jokes always worked. So it was very normal for me to kind of ridicule um, that entire activity. And then one day, it was really funny. I had just won the state speech and debate championship. This was my sophomore year. Okay. And literally the next day, I'm waking up. It's like 8 a.m. And my mom's like, oh, you got mail. She puts it on the counter and it's an invitation to the Miss Colorado pageant. <laughs> and I just start laughing. And I'm like, what? Who did they, did they see me compete or something and they want to change my mind? Don't they know who I am? I know. And <laughs> I just threw it away in the trash can and I was like, Absolutely not. And that night I couldn't sleep. And I felt like maybe, you know, you have dealt with stereotypes so much in your life and you've dealt with so many people not knowing and taking a chance to know who you are. So aren't you kind of being a little unfair by judging this community without ever having tried it? And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I'm being a little bit closed minded. I went downstairs, middle of the night, pulled out the envelope in the trash can, opened it up, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do one pageant. I know I'm going to hate it. It's going to be the worst experience of my life, but I'm going to do it, get it over with, and then at least I'll be a little bit more open-minded about having experienced it. And if you make fun of it, you'll at least know what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like I was being really closed-minded towards the activity. And How did it um, turn out? You know, joining pageantry... I can truly say has been the best experience of my life. What surprised you about it? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is we call it beauty pageants. But for me, the experience, I mean, I truly believe everyone is beautiful. It's more of a confidence pageant for me. How can I be confident in my unique beauty and really own all my unique flaws and assets to the best of my ability so that it shows? So um, did, you, did you embrace your tomboyness? Yeah. Or did you like gussy up? I, I think I embraced it. Um, I, actually, here's what here's what it was. I think I've always been a little bit of a tomboy, but I don't think I ever gave my chance to explore dresses and heels and hair and makeup. And, and I never realized that I would like that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. um, but pageantry gave me a unique opening to actually understand and see that. And I've, I've ended up loving it. I think it's so much fun. And I think it's really important as I want to go into politics. I need to know how to be presentable and to look forward and to, you know, be my best self even on camera. And so you've done multiple pageants at yes, this point. Yes, yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are speaking with Serene Singh. She is a senior at CU Boulder now. And she's just been chosen as a Rhodes Scholar, the first woman to be chosen from CU Boulder for that prestigious honor and one of a small number of Sikh Americans who've won. You talked about challenging your stereotypes, your biases. How else do you do that? Another particular example is coming into Boulder I'm from a South Asian Sikh American family. I, I mean, also CU Boulder's campus is very very left-leaning and very liberal. Hmm. And that is how I've been raised my whole life. It's kind of been, you know, this is the right side. Everyone else is kind of crazy. And I came into college with that mentality too. And I noticed that in student government, everything was very left-leaning. And I thought, you know, Serene, if you really want to be open-minded and you want to understand people um, who are in Colorado, who are in your communities, who are people that don't get represented at the same levels, at least at CU's campus, um, maybe you should try working for, you know, the other side try working for someone else on the other party. And so I actually interned um, specifically for Mike Huckabee and then Donald Trump um, when they came for the GOP debate. 
CU Boulder hosted the GOP debate um, when it was time for election season, and I ended up becoming their interns. Completely incredible life-transforming experience. And I realized after that it wasn't enough. I wasn't totally convinced that I knew these people, that I could humanize them, that I could understand where they were coming from. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go intern uh, for Senator Cory Gardner. And that's what I did. I went to Washington, D.C. as the one person in that office that was totally on the other side of the spectrum. But I came out of it very, um, I, I felt very full. I, I kind of understood a lot more about myself that I didn't know. This is obviously the Republican senator from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would you say it most opened your eyes to? Like, did, did you change your mind about anything? I don't know if I'd say I changed my mind completely on anything, but I think I started to realize that I had opinions that were grounded on, like, nothing. It was just kind of like, this is mm. what I've been taught to believe, and this is what I believe. Um, but trying to understand that I don't know everything and really accepting that was really important to me, that understanding that people have different experiences and backgrounds in, in their lives that hold a lot of a lot more weight than my personal just thoughts. Um, and, and really validating that was important to me. Okay, so at Oxford, you plan to pursue a double master's degree. Okay, criminology and criminal justice. Wait, criminology and criminal justice yep. <laughs> and evidence-based social intervention and policy evaluation. I know. <laughs> That title alone could be studied. Yes. <laughs> um, I wonder what about the criminal mind interests you? It's so many different facets. I think the one of the most important ones is violence prevention. I think too often in our society, we are so focused on this is what we need to do right now. But how do you actually challenge violence long term? What works? Um, and there's no better place to study that than the UK where they have countless thousands and thousands of scientific studies and research proving what works in different communities and how to make sure it's enforced correctly. Do you mean domestic violence? Do you mean acts of terrorism? What are you thinking of? I'm I'm really open. Yeah. I want to learn about all of it. I want to learn how to protect communities. I particularly care about religious communities and women um, and also young girls. So I'm, we're, we're talking internationally, we're talking globally, we're talking at like the very local level. I wonder if that grows a bit out of your own experience as a Sikh. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think growing up as a Sikh American, I've learned many different things. One of the most important things is how can you become a better human towards people who you don't know? And people who don't understand, because I think my Sikh community constantly looks at the world and says, wait, hold on, we're, re- we're ready to talk about who we are. We're ready to talk about what we believe and why we are just as American as anyone else here, or just as Canadian as anyone else in huh. Canada, or just as British as anyone else here. But we just want that opportunity. And so trying to humanize groups that you don't necessarily agree with, that's what Sikhism has very much taught me. This is interesting. Uh, almost half of this class of Rhodes Scholars in the U.S. is made up of immigrants or first-generation Americans, and this was the first year DACA recipients were eligible. I'll say that uh, you you are not a new arrival, but... uh, (laughs) Okay, so you you had to go to Salt Lake for the final part of the Rhodes interview. That's where you played the trick on your family. Yes. (laughs) And when you were coming back, there's this video of everyone on the plane cheering you on. Serene Singh, she's a senior at the University of Colorado. She just won the Rhodes Scholarship. How did that feel sitting in that plane? Oh, it was so great. So it's so funny because that video was actually taken at like 4 a.m. or something. My flight was so early in the morning. And literally I had maybe 30 minutes of sleep. 
And so I was kind of still like in, you know, cloud 9000 trying to figure out what's going on. And the the flight attendant, she kind of was like, hey, um, you know, we, we heard you're a road scholar. This is really cool. I wonder how they, um, how they heard. Uh, yeah, I'm not totally sure. I think my mom has something to do with it. I have a feeling but... your mom has something to do with <laughs> it. She usually does. I'm not totally sure, but I, th- I think my parents had something to do with it. <laughs> well, we look forward to tracking your progress. Um, Serene, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. College senior Serene Singh is the first woman from CU Boulder to win the Rhodes Scholarship. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.